Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. This week on the podcast, I'm joined by our deputy editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting general practice. Coming up, we're looking at last week's pay announcement for junior doctors, salaried GPs and consultants and asking what it means for GP practices and what happens next with strikes by junior doctors and consultants. We'll also be talking about a new national system for reporting pressure in general practice that's been set up to help overwhelmed practices negotiate extra support. And we discuss results from the latest GP patient survey and what it tells us about patient satisfaction with their GP practice. Finally, our good news story looks at an initiative in Cumbria that's helping an underdoctored area plug workforce gaps by using a bank of GPs working remotely. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, we're looking at last week's announcement on pay for doctors in England by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, including what it all means for general practice and also the wider NHS. The deal, which was announced alongside pay deals for a number of other public sector workers, provides a 6% rise for consultants, junior doctors and salaried GPs for 2023-24, which will be backdated to April. Junior doctors will also receive a £1,250 one-off payment. The deal does not cover GP partners and general practice funding because that's still covered by the five-year GP contract, which comes to an end in March next year. Obviously, it's up to practices to decide how much of a pay increase they provide to their staff, but they are usually influenced by the pay awards for salaried GPs and agenda for change staff and often feel they have to match those amounts. At first, it seemed that practices would have to fund the 6% pay increase for salaried GPs out of the existing uplift in the contract for this year, but that turned out not to be the case. Nick, this pay award does have implications for practice funding, doesn't it? It does. As you mentioned, the government has backed a 6% pay increase for general practice staff, including salaried GPs for the current financial year, 2023-24. And it's confirmed that it will provide additional money to help practices cover the cost of that extra pay. To explain a bit of context, as you mentioned, general practice is currently in the fifth year of a five-year contract deal that started in 2019. And funding available under that five-year plan was intended to deliver enough money for practices to offer salaried GPs and other staff a 2.1% pay increase this year, which is obviously far below the 6% the government has just approved. Up until last week, the government had been adamant that general practice would not receive any additional funding beyond what was agreed half a decade ago under the five-year contract package. So the decision to approve the higher pay award and then to offer more money to fund it is a big U-turn from the government. The government backed the 6% rise because that was the level recommended by the Doctors and Dentists Pay Review Body, or DDRB, which advises the government on pay. The government has on occasion in the past ignored DDRB advice, but in this case, there are a number of reasons why it might have been quick to accept the recommended increase. Even though 6% is a higher increase than doctors have seen for some time, it falls well below inflation. Or, for example, the 12.4% increase offered to junior doctors in Scotland, which we'll come on to a bit later. Um, And it's also relatively close to the 5% consolidated increase awarded to nurses under the Agenda for Change framework for this year. The first government statements about the rise suggested that there wouldn't be any new money to cover the extra cost, which is the kind of thing practices are used to from recent years with pay recommendations accepted in some cases that went beyond the level budgeted for in the five-year contract and leaving practices shortchanged. But in this case, my understanding is that the government felt the 6% increase was so far apart from the 2.1% planned for under the existing contract that they had to provide extra money to bridge the gap. So the announcement 
definitely has implications for practice funding. A new tranche of money will be coming to practice at some point to help them cover the cost of the extra pay rise. But how it'll work isn't yet clear and it could be complicated. It is important to mention, even though the DDRB recommendation was just for salary GPs, the press release that came out afterwards from the government specified that they would be providing enough money to cover a 6% uplift for all practice staff as part of that thing. So we're talking about all staff in general practice, not just salary GPs, even though that's what the DDRB was recommending. You said it's going to be complicated there, but do we have any more information about what's going on, about how the money's going to get to practices or about the sort of levels of funding they need to cover these pay rises? As things stand, nearly a week on from the 6% pay announcement, we have no detail at all on how much money the government will provide to cover the extra costs for general practice or how it will work. I mean, we don't even know exactly how the government will calculate how much money it thinks is needed to bridge that gap between the 2.1% originally budgeted for and the 6% that practices are now being asked to pay. The likeliest option in terms of how the funding could be delivered seems to be that practices' core funding, global sum payments, will be increased and backdated to cover the extra cost, but that hasn't yet been confirmed. My understanding is that having made the initial announcement about the pay rise, the government planned to consult with the BMA over how to implement it for general practice before updating practices directly in a letter or something like that. But again, as things stand, that hasn't happened. The Global Sum currently pays practices just over £102 per weighted patient. So we could see that figure go up by a few pounds potentially to deliver the extra money. But there are a few factors here that make this a lot more complicated for general practice than it is for hospital doctors, for example. So obviously, for for hospital doctors, it's just a case of increasing pay across the board by 6%, and it's fairly straightforward. But in general practice, the implications of a 6% increase for all salaried staff will vary a lot from practice to practice. Some practices may have a GP workforce balanced more towards partners with fewer salaried GPs. Others may have fewer partners and more salaried GPs. Uh, But if the extra funding is delivered through a global sum uplift, the money's the same everywhere, even though those costs are going to vary. Global sum funding is also weighted according to the population practices serve. So as we've discussed before, the, the weighting leans heavily on the age and gender of the practice population. So practices get more money if their registered list is older and or more female. The weighting formula doesn't really recognise deprivation. Practices that need significant staffing to cope with the demands of a deprived population, which is a driver of workload, but don't have a particularly old population, for example, may lose out financially when the money for the 6% uplift is dished out on the basis of the weighting of global sum payments. Andy Powell, who's a board member of the Association of Specialist Medical Accountants, told me this week that some practices employ staff solely or largely to deliver specific bits of work under an enhanced service, for example, such as a homeless service. If funding for the pay rise is delivered through the global sum and the funding they receive for the enhanced service does not go up, then those practices might lose out because the staff that they're hiring specifically to deliver that service, there's no extra money coming in from that funding stream, they might find it harder to pay the 6% increase across the full range of their staff. What about staff hired through the Additional Roles Reimbursement Scheme, the ARRS? They may have received pay uplifts 
in line with the 5% Agenda for Change Award that was announced earlier this year. So will they now expect an extra 1%? And if so, where will that award come from? What about other staff employed by PCNs or through PCNs? How will the pay rise work for them? There are other factors too that suggest the uplift on offer may not be much more than a a contribution to the actual cost practices face. The minimum wage increased by 9.7% this year. For some staff, practices may already have had to offer rises well above 6%. Then there's the the fact that there's double-digit inflation. The cost of living crisis has seen some local employers at supermarkets, coffee shops, pushing up wages really significantly this year. And practices have had to compete with that to retain back office staff. And again, that might have involved rises over and above 6%. So it's not only that minimum wage increase, but other pressures too that are driving up staff costs. And then on top of that, we've talked before about other rising costs for practices, such as massive gas and electricity bills this year, other costs rising because of inflation for basic items. So what seemed like a simple announcement at first, a 6% pay rise for salaried practice staff rather than the original 2.1%, it's actually really complicated when it comes to general practice, which ultimately perhaps tells you something about the Frankenstein's monster that general practice funding has become. We've seen an email from the BMA to members about this as well, and, and they have said that they are going to be working with the Department of Health and NHS England to agree arrangements for how this additional funding will work. But they do also point out, as you mentioned there, Nick, that 6% is below inflation. Basically, it means that salary GP pay is is effectively further falling back. They said, while it might help with retention a little bit, it doesn't go far enough for for any practice staff to cover some of those competing pressures that practice have to match salaries from other local employers. So, yeah, it's definitely going to be a tricky thing to sort out. So we'll have to see what happens with that over the coming weeks. And obviously, we'll be following that. So that's sort of how it will all potentially be affecting general practice. But there's also obviously wider implications of the pay awards in terms of the current strikes by junior doctors and consultants, as well as overall NHS funding. The government said there won't be any new money from taxation or borrowing to pay for any of the public sector pay rises it announced last week. The government had budgeted 3.5% for pay increases. So clearly this 6% for junior doctors and salaried GPs as well as GP staff is a significant amount more than that. The Prime Minister said that the visa application fees for migrants will increase significantly and that the immigration health surcharge, which is levied on migrants accessing the NHS, will also rise in order to cover some of the unbudgeted increase in pay across the public sector. Department of Health and Social Care will be asked to find savings from elsewhere to cover any shortfalls after this, which is still likely to be a significant amount. And that's obviously a real concern. In response to all of this, the NHS Confederation, which represents health leaders and hospitals, said that unless the pay rise was funded in full, it would effectively put the NHS, which is already has really tight funding constraints, into an unsustainable position. NHS Confederation Chief Executive Matthew Taylor, he said that if local managers were expected you know, to raid their own budgets to plug any funding gaps at a local level, rather than the savings coming from changes or moving around money in central government, it would almost certainly result in cutbacks to patient care and really affect the NHS's ability to get waiting lists under control. So that's clearly pretty bad news, really. In terms of pay for consultants and junior doctors and the strikes, 
that pay deal does nothing to solve any of those issues either. So, so more bad news there. I mean, junior doctors staged a five-day strike last week, the longest strike in NHS history, and consultants are striking for two days this week as we actually record this episode. It's probably worth mentioning that during the press conference to announce the pay deal last week, Rishi Sunak said the, the pay deal was final and would not be revisited. He said there will be no more talks on pay, that the government would not negotiate on this year's settlement again and added that no amount of strikes will change the government's decision. But, you know, clearly the, the BMA is not happy with 6%. I mentioned there that email from the, the GP committee saying it, it wasn't enough for general practice staff and it's not enough for junior doctors or consultants either. It's another below inflation pay rise. BMA chair Professor Philip Banfield has said it will drive more doctors out of the NHS and the UK. The other thing that's quite important here, there's there's no real acknowledgement from the government about the extent to which pay has fallen in real terms since 2008 for both junior doctors and consultants and GPs as well. But we're talking about the junior doctors and consultants strike here. It's a 26% fall for junior doctors and 35% for consultants. That is a big part of the negotiations that the BMA is pushing for full pay restoration and Professor Banfield said it would continue to push for full pay restoration despite this 6% deal. There is some acceptance that from the BMA that it's not going to get to pay restoration straight away. And this is where you know negotiations could and, and probably should be happening. I think what the BMA does want, though, is a decent pay rise for this year, certainly not below inflation, and some kind of commitment from the government to work towards addressing pay erosion and getting back up to... 2008-9 levels within some sort of reasonable time frame. Nick, you mentioned Scotland earlier, but what happened in Scotland potentially could point to where solutions around the pay dispute with junior doctors in particular in England could lie. Throughout last week, the BMA was very keen to point out that the UK government's approach is, is really in stark difference to the approach that the Scottish government has taken with junior doctors north of the border. The junior doctors really stressed that as their strike got underway and Professor Banfield highlighted again after the pay announcement. So what's actually happened in Scotland? What agreement has been reached with junior doctors and what's happening next with that? In England, there's no sign of the BMA backing down over planned strikes. Consultants are taking part in a walkout, as you mentioned, that'll basically halt routine hospital activity for two days. And junior doctors have just finished the five-day strike you mentioned and further actions to come. Rishi Sunak has said that the offer is final, so it's a complete standoff. But in Scotland, junior doctors called off strikes after the government offered them a 12.4% pay increase for the current financial year. And that's on top of a 4.5% increase for last year. Crucially, as part of that deal, you know, speaks to some of the points that you mentioned just now around pay restoration. The government in Scotland has guaranteed that junior doctors will receive pay uplifts at least in line with inflation for each of the next three financial years. And it's committed to negotiations over further annual pay rises on top to make credible progress towards pay restoration. So while the government in England has dismissed the idea of pay restoration out of hand, in Scotland, the government is ready to talk about it and has offered a much larger pay rise in the here and now, plus guarantees for years to come. BMA Scotland and the Scottish Government are now planning talks from autumn. They're going to talk about improving the working and training conditions for junior doctors and look at setting up a new pay review mechanism that the BMA says will seek a mutually agreeable path to achieve pay restoration and protect doctors against future pay erosion. 
So this offer, which led to the strikes being called off in Scotland, is going to be put formally to BMA members in the coming weeks, and it's been backed by junior doctors' leaders. Overall, it's fair to say that the picture in Scotland is somewhat different from the situation in England at the moment. Another thing that's probably worth mentioning around all of this is that the pay deal of 6% does just cover doctors, and Nick has mentioned this earlier as well, but if you remember staff on Agenda for Change Pay, so that's almost everyone else employed by the NHS except for the most senior managers, voted to accept a pay deal earlier this year, which would give them just a a 5% increase. Agenda for Change is negotiated between the government and the NHS Staff Council, which involves representation from a lot of unions, and not all of the unions were happy about that deal or accepted it. You know, Indeed, radiographers in some trusts in England are also on strike this week in opposition to that deal. But the Royal College of Nursing was absolutely furious last week about the 6% pay announcement. Um, The RCN actually rejected that 5% agenda for change pay deal. And it went ahead with balloting members for more strikes earlier this year. But that ballot failed to get a mandate because the turnout didn't reach the level required by law. So the Royal College of Nursing were not happy with the 5% pay deal even before this latest announcement. RCN General Secretary and Chief Executive Pat Cullen said that Rishi Sunak would have to explain to nurses and the rest of the 1 million NHS workers on Agenda for Change why they got one of the lowest pay rises in the public sector. She said it was a highly cavalier approach by the government that would only add to the number of nurses who would be prepared to strike. So a lot of unhappiness about this pay deal from people not even covered by the pay deal. They might be stoking some more problems on that front as well. Next up, we've talked on the podcast before about a groundbreaking system set up by Devon LMC that aimed to provide a clear picture about the level of pressure facing practices in the county. The GP Alert State, or GPAS, is broadly based on the OPAL system that hospitals use to alert local healthcare systems when they're under extreme pressure. The GPAS system has now been rolled out across the UK with the first national report from the system published last week. So Nick, firstly, can you talk through how GPAS actually works? What does it record and how does it publish this information? The real genius of the GPAS system is its simplicity. Every Monday, practices are asked to submit a couple of really basic bits of information and then that's used to build up a wider picture of the pressure on general practice as a whole. Practices are asked to rate the pressure they face on a four-point scale from a green, completely sustainable level to an emergency black alert. There are a couple of tiers in between, amber and red, and those are effectively sustainable only in the short term and suggest practices may need outside support to cope with the pressure that they're facing. Practices are also asked to report numbers of patient contacts each Monday and their list size to give a sense of the current level of demand they're facing. There's also a chance for practices to provide some comment about factors causing pressure, whether they have large numbers of vacancies or staff off sick or patients coming in in large numbers for a particular reason. Devon LMC has been reporting this data in its own patch for some time and has declared countywide alert at various levels. But it's also been rolling out the system to other LMC areas to work towards a national alert state report for some time. And there are now around 40 LMCs that are fully set up to report with another 20 or so at various stages of development. And as you said, last week, we reported on the first ever national report on the pressure facing general practice generated by this system. What did this first nationwide report show? How are GP practices faring? 
Reports show that general practice is facing unsustainable pressure across the country, even now in midsummer. That's obviously particularly alarming because pressure will only rise as we move on into winter months. Across LMCs that submitted data, 60% are reporting red or black alerts indicating unsustainable pressure. The vast majority of them are red, I should say. And 80% are reporting levels of patient contacts roughly double or more the level general practice is funded to deliver. Just one LMC reported current pressures at a fully sustainable green level. The one caveat at this stage is that numbers of LMCs that managed to submit data for the first national collection were relatively low. 15 LMCs sent in data for this round. So, I mean, to be clear, that still covers certainly hundreds, if not thousands of GP practices. Devon LMC is hoping that that number submitting data each time will rise over the coming weeks so that the picture is more complete and the reports are going to come out on a weekly basis for that national picture from here on. How is it actually going to help practices? And so, so why is it in practice's interest to provide this information? You mentioned the OPAL framework that's used by hospitals to flag serious pressure. Uh, OPAL stands for Operational Pressures Escalation Levels. And hospitals basically use data to work out what level of pressure they're at on a four-point scale under this framework, much like the GPAS system. Crucially for hospitals, the, the OPAL system is used to try to guarantee a coherent and consistent system response to offer them support when they need it. So if hospitals are reporting the highest OPAL scores, levels three or four, uh, and they're under significant pressure, set responses kick in from the wider NHS. They might be able to move to emergency appointments only or stop delivering particular elements of their normal workload until they can get back on track. That is the ultimate goal for GPAS, to create a system that monitors pressure in real time on general practice and then triggers system responses to provide support when practices need it. So such as pausing quaff or stopping PCN targets for a while to ease pressure, the kind of things that happened during the COVID pandemic. Devon actually agreed a framework like that with its ICB some time ago. So ICBs are potentially open to agreeing those sorts of system responses to support general practice where there's evidence of really serious pressure. The problem is, that many of the levers that are often used to reduce pressure, such as pausing quaff, can only be used at a national level. That's another goal of this national GPAS report, to build the evidence that could be used to make sure general practice can demonstrate when those national levers need to be pulled. So what happens next with all of this? Devon LMC is eventually planning to turn it over to the BMA GP committee so that this national data can provide extra leverage for negotiators' representing the profession. So it'll be over to the BMA to try and negotiate for general practice, something like the OPAL system hospitals have, so that system responses kick in when practices are under pressure. Uh, And that's something LMCs have been calling for for a long time, and and which Devon's initiative has hopefully brought a step closer. Um, Devon is urging more LMCs to sign up to the system too. And up until the end of 2023, LMCs can actually claim back the cost of adopting GPAS from the GP Defence Fund. So there's a link for any LMCs that want to sign up in our story on the first national GPAS report. So go and have a look at that. So as you can tell so far from what we covered, last week was pretty busy in the world of general practice news. On top of all of this, we saw the publication of the results from the latest GP patient survey. The survey, which is published every year, looks at patient satisfaction with general practice. 
Nick, the survey results last year, so in 2022, saw a huge fall in patient satisfaction with general practice from the previous year. What did this year's results find? In terms of overall satisfaction with GP services, there was another drop this year. But after a 10 percentage point fall last time around, um, the fall this time was just one percentage point. So arguably reflecting satisfaction with general practice stabilising at the level we saw last year. The proportion of patients who rate their overall experience of general practice as either very or fairly good was 71.3%. And only 14% of patients say their overall experience was poor. So overall levels of satisfaction are still reasonably high. But this year's figure is nonetheless the lowest recorded in the six years since this particular measure has been recorded. Um, Up until last year, overall satisfaction with general practice was hovering between around 82 and 84%. And now it's just over 70. So it's down quite a bit, but overall still a fairly positive picture. Um, There are some other positives in there for general practice too. Levels of trust in people working in primary care is still really high. 93% of patients said they had confidence and trust in the healthcare professional they saw at their last appointment. A total of 91% said their needs were met at their last appointment, and 83.8% said the healthcare professional they saw was good at treating them with care and concern. 72% of patients were satisfied with the appointment they were offered last time they tried to book one. That's virtually unchanged from the previous year. But when it comes to booking appointments, for example, just 54.4% of patients reported a good overall experience of making an appointment, and that's down from 56% in 2022 and down significantly from just over 70% uh, or nearly 71% in 2021. Just under half of patients said they were able to book an appointment at the time they wanted or sooner. And just under half found it easy to get through to their practice on the phone. So those are clear issues that need to be addressed. It doesn't sound great that patient satisfaction scores are at their lowest point ever. But, you know, we need to remember this is in the face of huge pressures in primary care. We've just talked about when we were talking about the GPAS um, system there. So it is a, an achievement that things haven't slumped further, isn't it, really? The context practices are operating in is a huge factor that needs to be considered when you look at these results. Basically, general practice has begun to stabilise patient satisfaction at what is still a relatively high level despite the fact that it's had to manage 10% more appointments in the early months of this year compared with 2019 before the pandemic, with a workforce that shrunk by more than 2,100 fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs since 2015. We reported earlier this year that the GP workforce is looking after effectively 13 million patients more than it has the capacity to care for safely. So there's this huge mismatch between the patient population and the GP workforce, which is getting worse. And obviously, satisfaction with healthcare as a whole is down because of the huge NHS waiting list for hospital care. And and patients' frustration with being unable to access hospital treatment that they've been referred for is likely affecting their attitudes towards the people who've referred them for that treatment. 
You've also looked at this data from the survey on a regional basis as well, haven't you? We've got a map on the website looking at which areas have the highest and lowest satisfaction with general practice. What did you find with that? Is there a big regional difference with the scores? Variation in in patients' overall experience of GP services is significant at integrated care board level. Um, So at the top end of the scale, just over 80% of patients in Gloucestershire ICB are satisfied overall, compared with just 62.6% in Bedfordshire, Luton and Milton Keynes ICB. Uh, And there's the same score for the, the Black Country ICB. There are some correlations between areas with low numbers of GPs per patient and patients with low satisfaction, as you might expect. We've mapped this data by ICB. So for anyone who wants to go and explore how patient satisfaction varies across the country as a whole, do go and explore the map on on GP Online. Finally, our good news story is about how practices in a deprived part of Cumbria started a new initiative to help tackle workforce shortages. Nick, what was that all about? So it's just a really clever initiative from local GPs that's helped to plug gaps in their workforce, not with doctors from elsewhere in the country or from overseas or anything like that, but actually by finding and using capacity within the local GP workforce. What they realised is that there is a group of GPs who live locally, who are fully qualified GPs and who work in general practice or have worked in general practice, but who may not, because they're on a career break of some sort, for, you know, perhaps for family reasons, be able to come into practices to work and deliver care face to face. But they are available and keen to, in fact, work remotely and to, to support general practice in that way. And so GPs behind this scheme who've set up this GP bank say it's helped stabilise practices in deprived areas that had previously struggled to recruit. It's brought doctors back into the workforce who, like I say, couldn't work in traditional ways because uh, of childcare or other responsibilities. And they think this model basically has huge potential to support general practice at a time when England's workforce has, has shrunk, as we've just been talking about. The GP bank was actually developed by doctors at a, at a practice in Carlisle, really large practice, 38,000 patients formed from a merger of three smaller practices. That large practice, Carlisle Healthcare, now supplements its own workforce with an extra two to three full-time equivalent GPs working remotely through the scheme. It's added roughly 15% to its GP capacity by setting up this GP bank. There are two other practices in the area that are regular users, 11 in total across North Cumbria have been through the onboarding process to use it, but they think basically there's scope for it to expand a lot more. Basically, one of the GPs behind the scheme said that, you know, they knew from conversations with GPs locally and from the LMC that there was this untapped resource of sessional doctors who would step up to do this, provided the work's available. Crucially, these are GPs who understand the local system because they've worked in it. And so it's, it's just tapping into that block of the workforce, which is available. General practice really needs them. This is a way of facilitating those doctors to supplement the other workforce uh, by working remotely. But that's a really good news story to end on. Well, that's it for this week. We'll be having a break from our news podcasts during August, but we've got lots of great interviews with GPs and others from the world of primary care lined up for the summer. Next week, I'm speaking to GP Dr Tommy Perkins and medical accountant Andy Powell from Medics Money about why partnerships are still a good option. And they've also got some really good advice for GPs or others who are new to partnerships. So please do join me then. 
In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice and access a wealth of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 